Okay, thank you very much, Rabbi, for the very kind introduction. And I hope Rabbi doesn't mind if I really point out the, the really the most important qualifications I have for this talk. Number one, I'm wearing this special tie here with all these fruits on it and all. You know, I know you have some very good food coming up, but just in case uh, we have that. And you say you're not 100% uh, satisfied. We also have one here with all the vegetables. So, uh, <laughs> and one thing I can tell you, if you eat these foods for 100 years, I guarantee you live a long time. So, uh, not a medical expert, but I've done some research and I know that's a fact. But, you're not satisfied, I have a special kippah here also, some more fruits and vegetables. And in case I forget, it tells me I'm a veggie here. You know, otherwise, I, you know, when I think of having a steak, I take a look at this, it reminds me. So these are some of the qualifications, but most important of all, I'm wearing Fruit of the Loom underwear. <laughs> but you may have to take my word for that. <laughs> okay. So actually, today's topic really is indicated in the papers, vegetarianism. Is it forbidden? Is it mandated? Is it optional? And I want to get directly to that. It's actually, it's not forbidden, and I can tell you that because there are chief rabbis who are strict vegetarians. So late Shlomo Gorin, Ashkenazic chief rabbi of all of Israel, and certainly a chief rabbi can be vegetarian, certainly others can. The present chief rabbi of Haifa, Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Haifa, Rabbi Shai Yashib Cohen, he's a lifelong vegetarian. His father was so-called Nazir of Jerusalem. And the former rabbi, chief rabbi of Ireland, David Rosen, vegetarian. So it certainly is not forbidden. And it certainly is not mandated because there are other chief rabbis who do eat meat. So actually that means it's optional. We have a choice. And as Rabbi Siegel pointed out, this is a good time to consider that choice because a lot of things have been happening. Uh, he mentioned agri-processes, they are filing for bankruptcy, they're closed down or maybe producing just a small amount of meat, other slaughterhouses as well. The price of kosher meat is going up, there are shortages, so this is a good time to consider should we be vegetarians. So the talk today is designed to give a background so that we can make a good choice with regard to that. Well, starting out with the Torah, at first it doesn't look too good for our side because certainly there is a lot in the Torah about eating meat, a lot about sacrifices, and certainly, as you well know, Friday night dinners, uh, weddings certainly have a lot. We could filter fish and chicken and uh, chopped liver and all kinds of things. So this is why, when I started to investigate this, this is like a leap of faith, a feeling that a religion that is so much about compassion about taking care of our health, about sharing, about justice, about envir environment, etc., must have a vegetarian message. So what I want to do is a little bit discuss what does the Torah have to say about this and then go into some of the modern day considerations. Okay, well actually it's in the very first chapter. God's first dietary regimen Chapter 1, verse 29, strictly vegetarian, actually vegan, just talking about the herbs and the fruits, all plant foods, and all the great Torah commentators from Rashi, the Rambam, the Ramban, Ibn Ezra, to modern day commentators, all agree that people originally were vegetarian. And we don't use this as proof, but in chapter 5 it talks about the very long lives of people up to Methuselah, 969 years. 
Now, I'm not promising anybody here that it'll live anything like that, but uh, button science is finding many health benefits of vegetarian diets. And this is also consistent, by the way, with modern science, who is finding that we are much, much closer to herbivorous animals. We don't have the claws, the long, sharp, hard, dagger-like teeth of carnivorous animals. Our, as human beings, our stomach acids are only 1 as strong as that of carnivorous animals. We also have an intestinal system that is four times longer. We have a long, winding intestinal system. If you could take it out and straighten it out, it might reach all the way to the wall over there. Whereas carnivorous animals have a short, short, straight bowel system. The meat enters the body and leaves in a short amount of time. So we're very different on that. So God's first dietary regimen, vegetarian, but people are not always ready to live up to God's ideals. Later on, people became corrupt would even eat the limb of a living animal, so that after the Mabul, the flood, permission was given to eat meat to Noah. But there too, right at the beginning, there was it's not a carte blanche, there was a restriction. You cannot eat the blood, the first of many, of course, dietary laws, the laws of Kashru. Okay, but God, again, according to some, was not completely satisfied. There was a second vegetarian attempt in terms of the manna from heaven. When the Israelites left Egypt, a new beginning for 40 years, manna, certainly non-meat food, kept the Israelites in very good health. But again, people were not satisfied. They cried out for flesh. It was reluctantly provided in the form of quails, according to the Book of Numbers, by Hashem. And according to the Torah, while they were chewing on it, a great plague broke out and uh, many died, and a place where that occurred was called Kivrot Hatava, the graves of lust. That's an early warning of the negative health effects of animal-based diets. So again, permission was given to eat meat, and initially you could only eat meat if it was part of the sacrificial services. Some feel that sacrifices were a rationale for the eating of meat, and uh, Maimonides pointed out, by the way, about the sacrifices, that this was a concession, to the t- a concession to the times, that this was a common mode of worship, and if they tried not to have the sacrifices, that might have been rejected, and all of Judaism as well. Okay, later on, when people moved away from one central location with the sacrifices, more general permission was given, but there too, with many stipulations. Certain animals, of course, you can't eat, Certain parts of an animal can't mix milk and meat. And these many restrictions, according to Rabbi Abraham Isaac HaKohen Cook, chief rabbi of pre-state Israel and one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, he felt these many stipulations, restrictions, were an implied reprimand or scolding designed to keep alive the idea of reverence for life and lead the Jewish people back to that original vegetarian diet they had in the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, he also felt that the other ideal time to come, the Messianic period, would also be vegetarian, and he based that on the powerful prophecy of Isaiah, that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the lion shall eat straw with the ox, and no one shall hurt nor destroy in all of God's holy mountain. So permission was given to eat meat, but it's interesting to note 
the two ideal times in the Jewish tradition, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, and the Messianic period, the ideal times are both pictured as vegetarian periods. And by the way, the last part of that quote from Isaiah, no one shall hurt nor destroy in all of God's holy mountain, that is the motto of the International Jewish Vegetarian Society, centered in London since about the mid-1960s. Okay, so you can see there is at least some indication in the Torah pointing to vegetarianism, but our main case is really based on what are fundamental, basic Jewish mandates, six mandates that I'm going to indicate now and then try to talk a little bit about the Jewish teachings later to it and how they are violated by the production and consumption of meat and other animal products. Okay, six mandates. First, to very diligently take care of our health. Second, to treat animals with compassion. Third, to be co-workers with God in protecting the environment. Fourth, to conserve natural resources. Fifth, to help and share with hungry people. And sixth, to seek and pursue peace. Again, these are all fundamental. It's not like I found 13th century rabbi and here's a little quote and I can bring in, but these are all basic to Judaism. Okay, first, taking care of our health. The Torah says, Benishmatem be old l'nafshotechem in the book of Deuteronomy. And the sages interpret that to mean be very diligent in taking care of your health. In fact, uh, laws related to the preservation of health and saving lives are considered more important than ritual matters. And uh, you can argue that this may be the most important mitzvah in Judaism because it overrides certain ritual matters. For example, we all know how important Shabbat is in Judaism. You know, thank God we had this wonderful day of rest, how important it is. But if, God forbid, a life is in danger, somebody can't say, well, I'm a religious Jew. If I can just wait four hours, then I can take it to the hospital. Then I can make a phone call and all. You know, it's not a matter of if we may. We must do whatever is necessary to save a life. Because the Torah, of course, is given to live by and not, God forbid, to die from. And also we know how important it is fasting on Yom Kippur. But again, if... The medical experts say you should not fast, it would be dangerous to your health, then you don't have a big feast, of course, but you have to eat minimum amount. Or drinking four cups of wine on Pesach, there too, taking care of health is more important. Okay, so we have a Jewish teaching. Finish Martem, be old enough to take him, be very diligent, take care of your health. But the reality is, as we're going to see with the other mandates, the way the world is very different because animal-based diets have been linked to really an epidemic of heart disease, various kinds of cancer, other chronic degenerative diseases. Many studies have shown this. One important study is a so-called China study, which was called the Grand Prix of Epidemiology. You could only do it in China. They went to, I think it was 65 villages. The fat content in the diet in China varies from 6% to 24%, very low by U.S. standards, but there's 24 to 6, a 4 to 1 ratio. And they found the more meat, the more animal protein in the diet, the more of various types of diseases. Then we have a study, which unfortunately doesn't get enough attention, that of Dr. Dean Ornish, a young doctor on California, he showed that actually heart disease can be reversed 
without the usual approaches of surgery, all kinds of drugs, on a very low-fat, pretty much a vegan diet, and uh, many cases where uh, heart disease were reversed, so without the surgery, etc. And there were other studies, you know, some people say, well, there are other factors besides the diet. Stress is a factor, but what could be more stressful than wartime? Yet there are wartime studies, like Norway's in World War II, where because of blockades, wartime conditions, they were forced on a pretty much of a vegetarian diet, and the death rate in the civilian population went down like 37%. And then, of course, heredity is a factor. We all know genetics is brought up. But far more important is the diet. We know that from migration studies because people in Japan do not get much of breast cancer, other kinds of cancer, but when they move to the U.S. and they change to the standard American high-fat, meat-based diet, then in one generation, they are then getting these diseases. So related to this, I just want to talk about two myths that keep a lot of people from vegetarian diets, and I consider this a protein myth and a calcium myth. And I say they are myths because the the number one question that vegetarians get, you can probably guess, how do you get enough what? How do you get enough protein? You know, it's like, uh, somebody said, it's like, almost like the fourth color in the American flag. It's red, white, blue, and protein. This is a question <laughs> get over and over again. But the reality is that on a good, well-balanced diet, it's almost impossible not to get enough protein. And the reason I say that is the initial experiments were done on rats. And a rat's mother's milk has 47% of its calories in protein, a rat's mother's milk. But a human mother's milk, over only 5%. A human mother's milk, the best way to feed a baby, 5%. Now, everybody here in the next six months is probably not going to change much. Maybe we'll gain a pound or two, maybe we'll lose a pound or two. But an infant doubles his her birth weight in the first six months, and that's a time when they're getting 5% of their calories from protein. So it's easily obtained in a well-balanced diet with nuts and seeds and grains and legumes like tofu, etc. Even a cantaloupe melon has 10% of its calories in protein. Yep. I have the uh, a graph here. I can show it to you later in more detail. Now, <coughs> this relates to the, what I call the calcium myth because it turns out you know, you've all seen these ads, the milk mustaches, you've got to have milk for strong bones. But it turns out that the countries that get the most calcium, like the U.S., Scandinavian countries, Israel, have the most osteoporosis. You mentioned a China study, they are lactose intolerant, get far less calcium, and yet far less osteoporosis. The Eskimos, who because of the high fish and blubber diet, get more calcium than any other people on Earth, get osteoporosis women very often in their 40s. Now, the reason for this ties in with that protein myth because the human body can absorb carbohydrates and unfortunately can absorb excess fat, but it can't absorb excess protein. So most people on a high dairy diet are getting a lot of meat. They're getting a lot of that animal protein, and that's going to be excreted. But before that happens that uh, the nitrogen and sulfur in that protein acidifies the blood. 
And Hashem has given us a body marvelously made to counteract these things, and calcium can buffer or neutralize that excess acidity. And if there's not enough in the blood, it's going to be taken from the bones and thereby excreted along with that excess protein. So you can be taking in a lot of calcium, and uh, the questions we'll take at the end of the talk. You can be taking a lot of excess calcium, but you still can have a negative calcium balance because the amount in and the amount out, you know, more could be leaving. You know, talking about financial crisis now, it's like you put in a thousand dollars a month in a bank, but if you're taking out fifteen hundred, by the end of the month, you're still going to have a negative balance. Okay, so anyway, we can almost say dayenu at this point, as we say at Pesach. This would be enough because. The most important mitzvah, and as I said, is abundant evidence of the negative health effects of animal-based diets. But there's much more. One important thing is about compassion for animals. Very important Jewish teaching. Now, Judaism, as we read just a few weeks ago in the Torah, indicates only human beings are created, but Selim Elohim, in God's image, not animals, but we still have very strong teachings about compassion for animals. Tzabarichayim, beautiful Hebrew phrase, means we should avoid causing un- any unnecessary pain to animals. Now, in the Jewish tradition, compassion for animals is really a test for leadership. We've just gone through an election. We know sometimes a military hero, sometimes a great speaker, a legislator, but Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest Jewish leader was chosen, not for those qualities, but because as, as a youth, he showed great compassion for his sheep. And the same Midrash, or rabbinic commentary that mentions that, also indicates that King David was chosen as well for that reason. Test for leadership, also as we're going to see in the Torah reading coming up, Chaye Sarah, it's coming week, it's a test for choosing a spouse. Abraham, of course, the first Hebrew wanted to make sure the Jewish people would be continued, and he sent his servant Eliezer to make sure a proper wife was chosen. And it's so important, it's told four times the words of a servant, Eliezer. The test he set up, of course, was that at the well, if he would ask for water, if, and it turned out Rivka, Rebecca, would say, drink and I'll also water your camels. Talking about ten thirsty camels who had just crossed the desert. So, compassion for animals, take a look this coming Shabbat. Four times the story is indicated in how it was thought out and carried out and told to Rebecca's family, etc. Okay, so in the Torah, there are very strong teachings about compassion for animals. You can't yoke a strong and a weak animal. You can't muzzle an ox while threshing in the field. If you have an animal you have to feed the animal before sitting down to your own meal. Okay. And compassion for animals is so important, it's even part of the Ten Commandments, where it indicates that not only we as humans are to rest on the Sabbath day, but animals are also to be permitted to rest as well. And that's part of the Kiddush recited on Shabbat mornings. Okay. Now, in addition, the Book of Psalms, indicates, and this is said three times a day in the Ashray prayer, that God's mercies, his compassion, is over all of his works, all of his creatures, not only human beings. And the book of Proverbs indicates 
that the righteous individual considers the life of his or her animals. So you can see there's quite a bit on compassion for animals. And again, Jewish teaching on one hand, the reality out there is very far from that. Because we're talking about factory farming. Animals are treated not as creatures of God, but as commodities. How can we raise them, fatten them up, slaughter them, uh, make the most profit possible? So I can give whole talks on all of these phases, but I'll try to give one or two examples. And one is at the egg-laying hatcheries. 250 million chicks are killed almost immediately after birth. 250, this is in the U.S. alone. Now, the reason for that is that the egg-laying hatcheries, these are the male chicks. Can they lay eggs? Of course not. And also, they have not been genetically programmed to have much meat. They have what they call layers, the eggs and broilers, and therefore, it doesn't pay, quote-unquote, economically to feed them a lot of grain when they will not have that much flesh. So they were right off the bat, 250 male chicks just put into like a garbage can with a plastic bag, covered up, suffocated, or possibly ground up for pet food. Now, you might think, well, here is at least one case where it's better to be female. We don't find too many examples of that <laughs> in the world. However, I'm not so sure about that because what happened with the females, they are kept in very, very small confined spaces, so small they can't even raise a wing. And uh, very unnatural conditions, so the all the natural instincts are thwarted, they can't do the natural pecking, so they tend to peck at each other, hurt each other, and all. So instead of saying, well, something's wrong here, let's give them more space, what do they do? They're in a very cruel process, like a guillotine kind of thing. They, without any anesthetic, they cut off their beaks, in effect. They're de-beaked. Very painful process and all. Okay, so this is what's happening out there on factory farms, contrary to powerful Jewish teachings of Tzad Barichayim, compassion for animals, imitating Hashem, whose compassion is over all of his creatures. Now, dairy cows do not do much better because they are artificially impregnated every single year, so they'll constantly be able to give milk. And uh, the females are then taken for future uh, being dairy cows, but the males are often raised as veal, kept in very confined spaces. They can't even turn around. They're denied any iron in their diet, so they'll have their pale white look that... Uh, Gourmets evidently prefer, and they're tethered to the size because if not, they would actually turn around and lick their own urine. They crave iron so much. So these are some of the examples of what's happening on factory farms, where in the U.S. alone, 10 billion animals are raised every year for slaughter. Okay, so we now have taken care of our health, one important mandate violated by animal-based diets, and uh, the concept of compassion for animals also being raised on factory farms.